But today, we are in John chapter 14, and we're in our second to last week in our series, I Am. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the statement that Jesus made, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John chapter 14, just to give you some context, Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room. They're celebrating what we've come to know as the Last Supper. This is hours before Jesus will be arrested and unfairly tried and convicted and condemned and tortured and crucified. And Jesus is sitting with his disciples, and it's a little chaotic in the room. And the reason why it's chaotic is because in the previous chapter, Jesus dropped a bomb on their dinner party when he said, one of you is going to betray me. You want to make a dinner party tense? Do something like that. One of you is going to betray me. And then he turns to Peter and says, and you, the leader of the pack, you're going to deny me. And so now the disciples, they can feel that something is wrong, but they're not exactly sure what. You ever been there? You can feel something is wrong. Maybe you're driving down the road and your car is doing something funky and you can feel something's wrong, but you're not a mechanic, so you're not exactly sure what. Maybe you felt something in your body at some point, some new ache, some new pain, something you didn't think could hurt before is hurting now, and you know something's wrong, but you're not exactly sure what. Maybe you bit into somebody's uh, casserole sometime and you're like, something's wrong, but I'm not exactly sure what. The disciples are having all these feelings. And into those feelings, Jesus says these famous words in John 14, 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And I just want to say, those words, how relevant are they for us today? How many of you need to hear that over and over and over? Do not let your hearts be troubled. And what makes what Jesus says here even more amazing is that Jesus himself, in chapter 12, two chapters earlier, it said that his heart was troubled. The same Greek word that he uses here, troubled. His heart was troubled because he began to think about the cross that was before him. And then chapter 13, it says that his spirit was troubled because he was thinking of Judas betraying him. And then just hours after Jesus says this, he's going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to literally break the pores of his skin and blood is going to come out because of the agony and the trouble that he's experiencing as he considers the cross and all that it means. And what I love about that is this. Jesus, when he says to us, do not let your hearts be troubled, he's not speaking as someone whose heart was not also troubled. He understands what it's like to have a troubled heart, to have a troubled spirit. But still, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. And when he says, do not let your hearts be troubled, he says, what next? Believe in God, believe also in me. He's saying, it may look like your world is falling apart, like the darkness is about to engulf your world, but do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. What I love about what Jesus says here is he doesn't say, do not let your hearts be troubled, everything's okay. He doesn't say that. You know why? Because we know everything's not okay. It would have been a fake, empty promise. I love that Jesus doesn't say, do not let your hearts be troubled. You can do better than that. Try harder. Bear down. Be brave. Be courageous. He doesn't put it on them. But he also doesn't let it go unaddressed. He addresses it. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And we have to ask the question, why can Jesus say this to us? What does he offer us that will allow our hearts not to be troubled in a world where we're suffering through a global pandemic, financial crisis, because of the global pandemic, maybe unprecedented polarization in our nation, politically charged environments, racial tensions, all these things are happening this year. How 
what does Jesus have to offer us in the midst of 2020? What we'll see this morning is it's the same three things that he had to offer the disciples that night. And the first thing is that he offers us a better place. Look at what he says next in verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go, I go, Jesus saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He's speaking of his ascension to heaven, but also in a way, I think he's speaking of where he's about to go next, to the cross. I'm going to the cross to prepare a place for you, and then I will go to the tomb, but then I will rise from the tomb, and then I will ascend to heaven, and in heaven I will prepare a place for you. Jesus is saying to our hearts this morning, there's a better place. There's a better place. Many of you have been praying for my family and specifically for my youngest daughter, Madeline, who spent about a month in the hospital having a surgery and recovery and therapy. And this past Thursday, she came home, and we're so glad and we're so excited that she's home and and that she's back with us. And when we left the hospital on Thursday, we said to Maddie, we said, Maddie, what do you want to do first? You're out of the hospital. She's breathing outside air for the first time in 30 days. What do you want to do? Where do you want to go? Do you want to go get lunch? Do you want to go shopping? And Maddie was like, I want to go home. I want to go home. From the day she had her surgery, that was her thing. I want to go home. And we would FaceTime her during that month. And, and, and as much as she enjoyed talking to me and her older sisters, at some point in almost every FaceTime call, she would say something like this, show me the house. Show me around. She just wanted to like look around. Show me my toys. Show me this stuff. And then she would always say, at some point, show me my room. And she wanted to go up and just look at her room and look at her bed. And it's almost like she wanted to be sure It's still there. It's still there. And when Jesus says, I'm preparing a place for you, what he's really saying is, I'm preparing your home. Your home. And every now and then, you and I need to be reminded, it's still there. Nothing that's happened in 2020 has stopped Jesus for one second from preparing a place for you. It's still there. And what I believe is that every human being has a longing in their heart for heaven, whether they realize it or not, whether they have the words to say it or not, because every human being has a longing for home. Think about the movies that we watch and the stories that we love, the famous line from The Wizard of Oz, there's no place like home. We've all said that when we've gotten home from a long trip. When I was growing up, there was this one movie, I guess it was clean enough that my parents let us watch it because we watched it over and over and over. It was called Homeward Bound, about two dogs and a cat that were on a long journey to get back home. And when they finally got home, we were like, oh, so satisfied. And so many movies we watch are about people trying to get home, maybe not to a physical home, but maybe to an emotional home, trying to get to a place of certainty and security or to a relational home where they're reunited and restored in relationship with somebody that they've been separated from. But we love these stories of trying to get home and the reason why I think these stories resonate so much in our culture today is because it's the story of scripture if you think of Genesis to Revelation the entirety of scripture the meta narrative is in the beginning two people get kicked out of their home and for the rest of scripture the question is how do we get back home how do we get back home and in Revelation there's a great city where we're home again with God There's a place that he is preparing for us, a better place. C.S. Lewis, genius, brilliant author, he called this the inconsolable longing that every human being has within themselves, the inconsolable longing. And everything we do and every pursuit we're on and every chase we, we go after is ultimately about this, trying to get home, trying to get to the better place. 
C.S. Lewis writes it so well, I, I, I can't say it better than him, so I'm going to read it to you. It'll be on the screen. He said, the Christian says that creatures are, born, are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. He gives the example. He says, I, I feel hunger because food exists. A duck wants to swim because water exists. We feel, the pe- uh, adults feel maybe sexual urges because sex exists, right? So there's these desires that we feel and there's satisfaction that exists. And then he goes on to say, this is his most famous line, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And he goes on to say, if none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it or to suggest the real thing. And if that's so, if it's true, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, but on the other hand, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo, or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. How are you doing at keeping alive within you your desire for your true country? You know this isn't it, right? This isn't all there is. And Christians should always experience a sense of homelessness on this earth because we're just passing through. And I'm not, some people believe that we're passing through to somewhere that will exist completely separate from here. Some people believe that, G, that God's going to make this world, this earth brand new, whatever, whatever that is. I'm, I'm not saying one or the other, but what I'm saying is home is wherever Jesus is for eternity. And whether it's here or whether it's up in the sky, wherever it is, that's where Jesus is. That's where we'll be. And that's when we'll know that we're home. And there is this sense of, like, I don't fit, I don't belong, I don't... And it's okay, it's good, because we were not made to be here forever in this current state of this world. This is not our home. You have a forever home. You have a place where you can put up your feet, be yourself, and relax. And that place is the place that Jesus is preparing for you, even today. Even this morning as you're sitting here, he's preparing a place for you. There's a better place. Secondly... There's a better promise. Jesus said, and if I go and prepare a place for you, here's the promises. Listen, I will come again. I will come again. And I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Three promises that he makes. Look at these three promises. I will come again. This is called the blessed hope of the Christian faith, that Jesus Christ did not abandon us, that he did not forget us, but that he will return for his people, that he will come again. And when he comes in again, that those who have died in Christ first, they will rise first. And then those who remain, we will be caught up and we will be with Christ and we will reign and rule with him forever. It's this amazing doctrine called the second coming of Jesus Christ. We believe in that. And the Bible ends with exhorting us to pray for that. Come, Lord Jesus, quickly, okay? So this is the first promise, I will come again. But the second promise, I will take you to myself. What I love about this promise is Jesus is not saying, you get yourself to me. He knows we can't do it. He's got to come back and get us because we can't get ourselves there. He will take us to be with him. And then the last promise, that where I am, you will always and forever be 
Jesus has a better promise. We all base our lives on promises. There's really, I think, two prominent categories of of people, and you fit into one or the other probably, or, or a mixture of the two. And one is people who live their lives based on the promises that have been made to them. So this type of person says, they, they look at their career and they hear their career saying, I'll prepare a place for you, right? They look at pleasure and they hear pleasure saying, I'll give you a home. They look at escape. They look at influence. They look at wealth and they hear wealth calling out, I can prepare a place for you. And it's the promises made to them that lead them often to live lives that are not very considerate or mindful of God, but they're pursuing the things of this earth. Maybe it's more of an irreligious way of living your life based on a promise. But then there's also a way that religious people do the exact same thing. Instead of living based on the promises made to them, they try to live based on the promises that they've made. I'll be very good. I'll do my absolute best. I'll be a very religious, moral person. And the truth is, is that not, not, neither way gets you to the Father. We're going to see in a minute when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. What Jesus is saying is, you don't get to the Father based on the promises that this world makes to you. It's always going to leave you empty, lacking, needing more. But you also can't get to heaven based on the promises you make because you're not consistent enough. We break our promises. We mess up. We sin. But you can get to heaven and you can be right with the Father based on the promises that Jesus makes to us. And that Jesus made these promises to us, and then he keeps these promises to us. Jesus gives us a better promise. And on the worst day of your life, when you are struggling, and when your heart is troubled, and when you're looking at the world, and when you're reading the newspaper, and when you're thinking about the election, and when you're thinking about the economy, and you feel your heart getting stirred and anxious and troubled, remind yourself of these promises. He's going to come back for me. He's going to take me to be with him. And I'll be with him forever. Now listen, it's not escapism because what happens is once you are able to settle your heart with those truths, it allows you to re-engage in this world in a meaningful, redemptive way. So I'm not talking about the phrase being so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. I'm not talking about living your life in the clouds and ignoring what's happening here. I'm talking about finding peace in the promises of God that empowers you to live out the purposes of God right here right now in your neighborhood, in your workplace, with your family, and with your friends. And this is what the promises of Jesus do for us, the better promise. And only because Jesus kept his promise do we have any hope. And just hours after Jesus says these words, he's going to walk to the cross where he's going to keep his promise. As we're going to learn next week, he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Because he did that, because he kept his word, we have hope and our hearts don't have to be troubled. So there's a better place, there's a better promise, but then the last thing we see in this text is there's a better person. Jesus, let's just finish this text. Jesus says in verse 4, you know the way to where I am going. And then Thomas, one of his disciples, speaks up and says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. (laughs) How can we know the way? And here's the famous phrase in verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is saying, you know the Father because you know me, and I came to reveal the Father. And I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we have to notice, okay, we have to notice that Jesus did not say, I am a way. I am a truth. I am a way to live your life. Jesus has the audacity and the authority to say, 
I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And there's no way to the Father but through me. You want to be right with God? You have to go through Jesus. You want to experience the abundant life? You have to go through Jesus. There's no other way. And I just want to suggest that in our culture today, in our society today, this is the most offensive I am statement that Jesus made by a mile. This idea, and, and, and to be fair, there are some fair critiques of the way Christians have treated other people, right? We're not always good about what we do with the truth, are we? However, the idea that the exclusivity of the Christian claim, that we claim that Jesus Christ is the only way to be right with the Father, that runs against the grain of society today, which wants inclusivity. Now, I have a daughter with special needs, so I'm for inclusivity when it comes to a lot of important things. But I also don't think that truth is always up for grabs. I think some things absolutely are true. And one of the things that I think absolutely are true are Jesus' words here. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. But listen, an exclusive truth claim doesn't have to create an exclusive community of people. Does that make sense? An exclusive truth claim does not have to create people who are exclusive and won't let other people in. The truth that Jesus speaks here was never meant to keep people out. The truth that Jesus speaks here was to bring people in, to bring them into the relationship with God. And so Christians, we don't use truth as a weapon that we wield to beat people over the head with. Instead, we take the truth of who Jesus is and we say, have you met my friend? (laughs) And his name is Jesus and he's truth. And we may disagree on a lot of different things. We may not agree politically. We may not, we, may not, we may not agree religiously. You might think this. I might think that. But let's just, can I introduce you to the person? It's a better person. Jesus is not giving us here a moral code, a moral code to live out. He's not giving us a creed to believe or disbelieve. He's not giving us a special revelation to experience or not experience. He's giving us himself. And if Jesus Christ is the truth, and as he died, he prayed this prayer for those who are crucifying him, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. What could be more inclusive than that? That Jesus Christ would say, even those who are killing me, I want them to know the way, the truth, and the life. And so, yes, Christianity does have an exclusive claim of truth. It's the claim that Jesus makes here. We don't believe that all gods are the same. We don't believe that all ways get to heaven. In order to to be able to say that all ways get to the top, you have to be standing at the top. It's actually a very arrogant claim to say, oh, don't worry, you believe whatever you want. As long as you believe it sincerely enough, as long as you believe it intensely enough, as long as you believe it consistently enough, well, where else in life does that work, right? If I say I sincerely, intensely, and consistently believe that, that the law of gravity doesn't affect me, it doesn't matter how sincere my belief is, how intense my belief is, and how consistent my belief is, because there is a law that ultimately is true regardless of what I believe. So what we believe does matter, not just how we believe, right? And we live in a world, in a society, in a culture right now that wants to say, no, you've got to let everybody have their truth. And the problem with that is where has it led us? Where is it, leaving? Where is it leading us? Where we can't define things, where we can't understand things, where we can't speak up for things, where everybody gets to create their own reality. And Jesus, in the face of that, says, no, no, no. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no one who comes to the Father but through me. I'm not saying go be that jerky Christian who's out there telling everybody how wrong they are and what jerks they are or anything like that. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is at some point, we do have to know what the truth is. And the truth is a person. And the truth is Jesus. And so when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and life, I want to I ask the band to come up. We're going to close in a song. He does something really cool. I want to finish with this. 
When Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life, what he's doing actually is very interesting. He's referencing the three prominent roles of leadership in the Old Testament. If you study the Old Testament, the history of Israel, the three big positions were priest, prophet, and king. Priest, prophet, and king. Look at this next slide. It says here that when Jesus said, I am the way, what he was saying is, I am the true and better priest. Because in the Israelites' history, the priest was the one who got them into the presence of God. The priest was the way in. And Jesus is saying, I'm the true and better priest who didn't just come to make a sacrifice, but came to be the sacrifice. Then he says, I'm the truth. He's saying, I'm the true and better prophets. Elijah and Elisha and Daniel and Hosea and all those prophets, they were great. But I'm the true and better prophet who didn't just come to speak the truth, but I am the truth. I am the word. Everything that God wants to say to his people in a person, that's who I am. And then finally, when he says he's the life, he's saying, I am the true and better king. Yet people would say, long live the king. And there actually was a selfish motivation behind that statement because the life of the king was always connected with the life of the people. The well-being of the king was always inextricably connected to the well-being of the people. And Jesus Christ is the one king who came to give his life, but how did he do it? He gave his life by giving his up. He gave his life by entering into death. He's the true and better priest. He's the way. He's the true and better prophet. He's the truth. He's the true and better king. He is the life. And because there's a better place, a better promise, and a better person, do you know what we can hear this morning? Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let's pray together.